Welcome to the Bitcoin for Advisors podcast. I'm Morgan Rochard, and with me I have... Pierre Rochard. And we're excited to start this show. So um, Pierre and I are married, and we have a lot of conversations about Bitcoin in our household, and we thought that people would like to hear them. That's right. I, I think people want to hear them. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully people want to hear them. If they don't, then, you know, stop listening, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you can stop this podcast at any time. But um, yeah, I mean... With the exception of, you know, our children interrupting us at dinner, uh, generally we have conversations about Bitcoin or about something that you're working on um, or things that are going on in my financial planning practice related to Bitcoin. Um, and we wanted to talk specifically today about um, the volatility and then also the regulations because we thought that these would be two big topics on people's mind right now. So why don't we dive into volatility? What's what's happening in the world of Bitcoin right now? Well, today it was down 10%, but just generally, I think that Bitcoin's volatility has been a criticism of it uh, going back to really its creation. Um, and it is something that is brought up by uh, both potential investors um, and also regulators as being a huge problem with Bitcoin, especially for people who think that, well, if we're going to use Bitcoin as a payment system, we can't have a payment system where the value of the underlying unit is going up and down 10% or 80% you know, over a course of months, uh, depending on what's going on in, in the market. Yeah, so I hear that all the time from clients where when we talk about it as being a currency is something that you can send, hold, and receive, but they're like, well, the price moves around so much, so how can this possibly be something that I could use in the future when um, it either goes up exponentially and it's something I don't want to spend because it's going up so much or it's you know dropping or doing whatever it is and it makes me uncomfortable. That's right. And but generically volatility is not a problem that's unique to Bitcoin. So equity markets can be volatile. Um, you know, the bond market can be volatile. Uh, so and traditional currencies can be volatile uh, against each other as well. Um, I think that Bitcoin's volatility is greater than those. The only market I've heard that has potentially sometimes more volatility is the electricity market uh, in deregulated areas, um, which is a whole other topic of conversation. Yeah, but I guess the difference is that nobody's trying to use their stocks, let's say, to go to the store and buy milk, right? Right. But there are people who do use the stock market as a savings account, and they are always, they're, they're like over-invested, right? So they their rainy day fund is invested in the stock market or even in tech stocks, specific tech stocks. So, yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, I think when I think about it, right, about the volatility, the volatility is only only an issue if and when you want to sell, right? So let's say you're retired and you're living off of a portfolio of Bitcoin because you, you know, you bought in 2012 or whatever, and you've made out really well and you decided to say F you to your boss and, you know, lay at home gardening or whatever it is you want to do. Um, and then you say, okay, well, now I have to live off my Bitcoin, right? Potentially, the volatility could be a problem in that situation because you might be selling at a time when the price is bouncing around. Um, and so 
to those people or to people who are, who are trying to use it, let's say, in that capacity, I would say that it makes more sense to manage the the part of it that you can control, which is like your expenses, how much you're spending, all the other things on the other side, rather than worrying so much about the volatility. So if, let's say, you decided to do all of that and retire on Bitcoin when it was the max price, right, and then it dropped, if you'd committed to high fixed expenses based on the price being a lot higher, then that's something that, you know, now you've you can't really control the price staying that high. But if you committed to lower expenses, right, it doesn't really matter if the price bobs around because it's not actually going to affect you. And in that example, that person has the advantage of having gotten in in 2012 and be sitting on massive gains. Whereas if somebody bought, like, let's say they bought the all-time high in 2017 at Mm -hmm. 20K, and they're in the mentality of, I'm going to use this for payments, and so they're like paying out expenses through the bear market. And then, you know, when by the time that the price starts going back up, they might have spent all their Bitcoin already and incurred massive losses. And they're left scratching their heads of like, well, I thought this was supposed to be a payment system in the future. And my view is that they are essentially misusing this asset that they're not um, actually using this money in the way that you're incentivized to use it, which is to slowly accumulate over years and not spend it until it has reached full value um, and full adoption. And that, I think, is probably like highly controversial uh, within the Bitcoin community and even more so outside of it, um, of, of people accusing it of being a Ponzi scheme. So if what you're saying then is that basically people should hold it until it is a currency. Well, we could get into a semantic argument of what a currency is. Um, I, I think that that's that's right, that, that until it's reached 100% adoption. Now, someone could argue that it's at 100% adoption today, that no one is ever going to... There's not going to be any new adoption uh, <laughs> after today and the, it has peaked, you know, for, for its life. Uh, and I haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, but, you know, maybe we could argue that we're like at 80% adoption. And so that just still means that you should just keep holding until we're at 100%. Yeah, but I mean, I think that there are scenarios where somebody would potentially want to sell some of their Bitcoin before we were at 100% adoption. Right, but they're selling it to do what? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Well, I think it depends, right? If you're selling it because you're retired and you need living expenses, right? Hopefully you've created some sort of plan where you are you have a withdrawal rate that actually makes sense. Um, maybe you're the kind of person who wants to go buy a piece of real estate. You're living in your parents' basement and now you want to upgrade. <laughs> so those are those are great reasons. Um, the, the bad reasons I hear is people trying to time the market. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. They're they're not actually like doing it to to consume, or they're they're thinking that they're diversifying into other investments, and it's not even about owning real estate to to live in it, but rather owning real estate because they think that's a way of preserving the wealth that they've built up thanks to Bitcoin. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I think, though, in some regards, right, people think, oh, well, if it has a lot of volatility, then I can trade it a lot more and and then therefore I'll be able to make more money. Um, but what we found really with any asset that's super volatile is that the more volatile it is, the the better off you are just holding. 
And those are the people causing the volatility, ironically. <laughs> um, yeah, and the way I see it, too, is that there's, um, if we look at just basic supply and demand, right, on the, to me, the fundamental supply is the Bitcoin miners creating more Bitcoin, and the fundamental demand is the long-term buy and hold people. And then that is, in my mind, steadily increasing Bitcoin's fundamental value. And then you have all the people who are trying to trade it short term. And they're the ones that are causing the price to oscillate around fundamental value. Uh, well, normally the value would slowly go up and then it would go up a lot when there's a halving because now there's less supply and there's still the same demand. Um, but because you have all these traders trying to time the market, leveraging up and down, that they're the ones that are causing the volatility around the fundamental value. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense for sure. Um, and so, I mean, if you're a trader out there, you should really be reconsidering that maybe. Well, or, or they're, they're good at trading, yeah. so we can't <laughs> exclude that possibility. But what I've heard is that like, there's 5% of people who are good at trading and 95% who are bad at it. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing though, it's like, why are you doing this to yourself? Is I guess the other question, right? Like, I feel like there's some sort of um, like allure that if you're trading or whatever, you're going to make these massive gains. And then I guess the ultimate goal is to stop trading, right? And be able to retire and just have lots of money. I mean, I'm not really sure what I'm not in the trading mindset. So it's really hard for me sometimes to imagine what people would be doing. Um, or if maybe you just like the gambling aspect of it. So if you find yourself in like the gambling part of it, then it's like, okay, maybe just take a small amount and just have fun instead of actually thinking that this is the way you're going to make money. Um, because like when I think about things like the, I don't like to spend a lot of money, I'm sorry, a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to do with my money, right? I like to do other things with my time. So even as a financial planner, I'm like, you know, and this is all we think about and talk about and talk to people about, I don't really want to spend a lot of extra time <laughs> doing that besides that. So for me, it's like, why would I spend all day like trading around when I could just hold an asset, um, for a long period of time and actually make up better than trading? Yes, I agree. I think that there's some some level of ego involved of I'm smarter than the market mm. and therefore I can look at this chart. I, I know where it's going to go. Um, but the other part is that people look at their dollar denominated gains. Yes. Specifically, this is I've seen this be specifically a problem with Bitcoin. I'm sure it's a problem with other asset classes where they're not benchmarking against the market. Instead, they're just looking at how well they've done versus just holding one dollar. Well, totally. Yeah, I think that that's a problem in all asset classes. I mean, specifically, I would say rental property owners, they tend to only see the income side of the of what's going on, not even like they don't even really include their expenses sometimes in that income statement. Um, and then, you know, they look at the balance sheet gains, but they don't necessarily include the mortgage and everything else, the maintenance that they put into the place to actually calculate a real return of what they had. I see very few people actually doing like a cap rate table and everything else that you're supposed to do if you're going to go into something like that. Um, and it's really common. I remember even when um, back in the days when I used to work at like Merrill Lynch and UBS, um, like we would pick. So I mean, I didn't do this, but I worked for advisors that would pick periods of time to show returns over that looked the best rather than picking just a generic time period that everyone goes by, like year to date or 
<laughs> you know, this quarter, um, they would pick like, they would cherry pick dates and things. So I think that people in general like to do that, right? Because they like to see their gains. And also like custodians in general don't like to show the return. They don't even show a, a good return, right? They show your total return. They don't show a time weighted return or anything else like that. So when people see, oh, I made 30%, maybe they don't take into account that making that 30% took them 15 years and they actually only made 2% per year, right? So um, that's a really common thing that people do. And, and for sure that I know traders do because they're just looking at the dollar gains. They're not looking at the percentage versus like the amount of capital that they invested and how much time it took them to do it. And and the risk that they took on. Oh, yeah, that too, for sure. Somebody with a rental property and a mortgage, you know, they might do out well, but if if they on a risk adjusted basis of like, well, what if the property market had gone south? Granted, it, it didn't. But what if it had, then you might have had total loss of capital. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because like when we talk to people about doing rental properties, we're looking at it from the perspective of, okay, you can get like 7% pretty consistently from buying a REIT. So you have to be compensated. You have to make at least 7%, right, in order for it to be worth it. And then you have to be thinking about the additional risk that you're taking on with a single property, the fact that you're the, the land, the, the, um, the landlord and everything else, and that you're going to be doing some of these things or hiring a management company to do them for you. Um, I think it's just it's just this misconception that you can kind of go out and have passive income, like from the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, um, and that I have to have multiple streams of income, and that's the only way that I can get wealthy, and then I have to make all this stuff for myself and do basically all of this work that ends up getting you in a place that you would just have been so much better off if you just bought and hold something. Yeah. And that it, it, on the risk side, we could look at the price volatility you know, of the, the real estate market, but there's... There's with every asset in the world, there's a long list of potential risks. So with real estate, you know, we've got insurable risks, fire, flood, and then there's uninsurable things of uh, a, a pipe leaking. I don't know. I guess that would be part of flood, um, <laughs> but uh, just generally termites or things like that, that. You get a really bad tenant. Yeah, bad tenant throwing parties at your house. On Letting time. weeds grow like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Punching <laughs> holes in the wall. <laughs> Actually, your kids could do that too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Kids are a big risk. <laughs> Animals. Animals. <laughs> um, but also the risk of not finding a tenant, right? And yes. then yeah. it's an occupancy risk. And there's this long list of risks and uncertainties with any kind of investment. And I'd also argue with any kind of currency, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And so people like focus on Bitcoin's exchange rate risk and to the detriment of looking at any of the other possible risks and uncertainties involved with a currency. Because to me, like Bitcoin has greater exchange rate risk because it actually has it's a trade off that it has less monetary policy uncertainty. Mm, yeah. So why don't we go into that? Because I feel like if you're constantly measuring Bitcoin against the dollar and the dollar is generally like the audience that we're talking to here, what are a lot of like, what are the risks that you would say in holding US dollars? Yeah, so, great question. Well, uh, it, there's really it goes into three buckets of um, receiving dollars, holding dollars, and then sending out dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of risks for receiving dollars, um, you know, they, they might not be material. So, for example, um, your bank account getting shut down or a wire transfer getting held up or, uh, or uh, some kind of ACH fraud or some kind of identity theft, mm. uh, you know, 
all of these other risks associated with dealing with the dollar system. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are definitely scams for Bitcoin as well. So people are constantly trying to scam folks out of their Bitcoin. Um, the difference I would draw with the dollar system is that you have this risk of uh, somebody taking money out of your account um, much more easily than them uh, taking your Bitcoin away from you uh, with uh, your private keys. That's a whole other conversation, though. On, on the holding part, um, the biggest risk is that of dilution. So uh, with Bitcoin, if you own one Bitcoin, then you know that you own one out of 21 million total Bitcoin. Now, we're not at 21 million Bitcoin yet. There's still more Bitcoin being created, um, but it's asymptotically targeting 21 million over the long term and really will be like 99% of the way there within the next decade. Um, and we're already like 85% of the Bitcoin have already been mined. Mm -hmm. With the dollar, like they can just increase the money supply by 30% overnight. And that's, they have been doing things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if we were to measure volatility of money supply, the dollar is way more volatile than Bitcoin is. Now, it makes sense to look at the volatility of purchasing power, for sure. The issue I, I find with that approach, though, is that they're only looking at the purchasing power for consumer prices. So they, they have a basket of consumer goods that you would buy at the supermarket. They don't look at things like, for example, what are the prices of investment goods? Mm -hmm. And I don't really see a justification for excluding those because that is something that people are spending dollars on. Well, the other thing being that included in that is real estate and people, it's people's largest fixed expense, right? So if there's no inflation, let's say, or 2% inflation in the rest of the basket of goods, but your um, the cost of housing has gone up somewhere between 10 to 15% a year, right? Now your largest fixed expense, the thing that actually affects your budget the most has the largest quantity of inflation in it. That's right. And if we look mechanically at why is there more inflation in real estate than in consumer prices, I think it has to do with the amount of government involvement in the real estate lending market, where you can get subsidies to have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And that is a market that will get government intervention in order to prop it up into lower mortgage rates. Um, and so if you were able to get low interest rates for borrowing to buy consumer goods, mm -hmm. then we would see consumer goods inflation like we see real estate inflation. Yeah. But unfortunately, you get like a 30% interest rate on your credit cards. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if the if the Fed was buying credit card debt to push it down to like 2%, then you, <laughs> and, and people were getting, you know, 30 year payment plans on their credit cards they would go crazy buying consumer oh, goods. Oh, totally, yeah. You would probably see, like, I imagine you'd see massive inflation in, like, weird things like clothing and random collectibles and... Collectibles, or, yeah, huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so there's there's bias there. And same thing with uh, higher education. Like, we see the cost of higher education going up. Well, why is that? Well, it's because student loans are subsidized by the government. Yep. So any any kind of anytime they subsidize a specific part of the credit system, that's going to drive up demand and thus 
cost and price for that area. Yeah, well, I think the other thing that's often not spoken about is that that means that the government is deciding what you should buy, right? What they think is valued over other things. So like housing and education, obviously, they think that those two things are more important than pretty much anything else, I would say, right? But they're not really considering other aspects of people's lives as something that they would intervene in. Yeah, and it's it's strange because from a political perspective, you have people saying things like, well, we want to promote home ownership because that results in better communities. And I think that's a um, very simplistic way of looking at what results in good communities. <laughs> uh, you know, what results in good communities is people not being under constant financial stress trying to meet their mortgage. Oh, totally. And I mean, we've seen it kind of in our own neighborhood of um, while our neighborhood is trying to be a community neighborhood and it, you're not allowed to Airbnb your house or anything like that. There's still like because of all the money that's sloshing around the system, people are flipping their houses. Um, they're turning into rental properties. So people are moving in and out. You know, it's there are side effects to the intervention that are always um, unforeseen by the government and unintended. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point um, that uh, the home ownership number is an aggregate. And I think that's like a problem uh, in economic policymaking in general is that they look at aggregates. Because really, if you were trying to make a good community, you would look at turnover of um, of inhabitants. Oh, totally. Yeah, you wouldn't look at an aggregate home buying number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in any case, so uh, yeah, inflation. I think uh, is <laughs> getting getting back <laughs> getting on, back it, to the a, original a, question, which is why is USD risky? <laughs> yeah, and the the other part is that um, when you're so you know, I I think we could get into this discussion about what is money uh, and what is it for, um, because to me, I think that we're we're so deep into the current system that we've even lost sight of what money's supposed to be, where now people think of money as it's just a payment system, and you're supposed to live paycheck to paycheck, and you're supposed to hold as little money as possible, mm. and you're always supposed to be investing, whether you're investing in a money market fund or investing in Tesla shares, you got to be putting your money to work yep. or spending it. And and you got to be, you know, even using a credit card and, uh, you know, carrying a balance and never holding money because you're going to lose at least two percent optimistically. Optimistically. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Um, so, I mean, I, I sort of I kind of fall into that camp, too, because, right, I'm a financial planner and we live in the current system. And the whole point is that we get people's cash to work because it has to go to work. Um, so it forces that decision really for people. When you live in an inflationary environment, you are forced to invest or spend. There's kind of no like stock money away part of it unless you just, you know, you're just ignorant of what <laughs> of what's going on or so fearful of investing, right, that you just end up stockpiling cash. But even the people who are feel fearful of that, they know they're not supposed to be doing that. It's not like they're like, oh, I, they're completely ignorant to the fact that inflation exists. They're just like, they're just so paralyzed by the fact that they have to do something that they don't end up doing anything. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, I, it's a weird... It's a weird place to be, though, where you where you finally can say to yourself, OK, maybe I'm actually supposed to hold money um, because so much of society has told us that we're not supposed to do that. Yeah. And it's the incentives are designed that way. Like it's irrational to hold a lot of cash. And um, I think even like Ray Dalio said, like cash is trash. 
like you know statements like like that have become um it used to be like cash is cash king. is king yeah uh, it got dethroned now now you've got to be uh in- invested in the market um now bitcoin flips that on its head because bitcoin its incentives so the reason that we have that set of incentives in fiat is because they're printing more and more of it and driving up that inflation uh, and pushing people to to consume and invest. And they do that deliberately. Like that is part of their ideology. It's not like it's some kind of um, symptom of other things going on <laughs> that they're like, oh, accidentally we have inflation and we don't want inflation. No, they, they like they target inflation. They want to have positive inflation they don't target zero percent. Mm-hmm. Like they explicitly say, like we're going for two percent consumer price inflation, and if there's market observers who have theorized that not only are they targeting consumer price inflation, they're also targeting stock returns. So back in the day, it was like the Greenspan put. Mm-hmm. Right? They'll never let the stock market go down. <laughs> they want it to go up, you know, 8% a year, maybe 15% one year, maybe, you know, a little less the next year. But generally, they'd want the stock market to go up. Yeah, I mean, especially after this last crisis with COVID, I'm starting to feel like, I mean, between the fact that um, the IRS, so last year, they pushed um, people's returns to July because they were like, okay, it's so crazy right now. We know you have your hands full with like this COVID stuff. So not only we're going to prop up the stock market, but we're also going to make sure that you don't have to file on time. And then when... (laughs) when they came around again this year and they were like, okay, you also don't have to file on time this year. We get it. It's still crazy, whatever. I remember just thinking to myself, like, are we just a nation of toddlers now? Like we can't let the market go down because, you know, God forbid we had like hurt feelings about these things. And, you know, we need to like be coddled basically. Like we can't do anything on time anymore and we can't let prices go down. I mean, what kind of weird society are we living in? Yeah, I think that that it's uh, infantilization of uh, society. Um, now the, the other part is the same thing with the bond market, right? Uh, that's, uh, they can't let rates go up they're trying to keep rates as low as possible. Um, but the, the, the consequence of that is people don't want to hold dollars. Um, and Bitcoin has the opposite set of incentives of where the, the monetary policy is going to be focused on scarcity, so uh, not printing as many Bitcoin as possible. In fact, cutting in half the number of Bitcoin being created every four years. Uh, And we just had the third halving uh, this past year um, to where now, uh, if if you look at the ratio of new Bitcoin being created versus the stock of Bitcoin out there, uh, it's now better than gold. that and the there, there's no targeting of Bitcoin's purchasing power. And so it's Bitcoin's monetary policy is entirely independent from what the exchange rate is and what's going on there. So when the price of Bitcoin is going up, that doesn't mean more Bitcoin are being created, which is unlike the gold market, for example. When the price of gold goes up, then you see gold mining go up. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And same thing with real estate. When the real estate prices go up, you see more real estate development. People mm-hmm. build buildings. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Inventory for sure goes up. And then that's how you end up in a situation where we're saturated and people can't move in or people, they don't, there aren't people to move in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, 
that drives Bitcoin's volatility in the sense that uh, there's no stabilizing uh, supply factor. Now, it also drives Bitcoin's returns. And I think that the problem with people focusing so much on volatility is that they don't acknowledge the context of that volatility, which is that Bitcoin crashes, quote unquote, when it has gone up in value too quickly. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, if you look at a price chart, it kind of um, basically it seems what it seems like to me is that people start to get involved because the price starts going up. They start it it generates interest of, oh, what's this asset class that seems to have gone up in price? Is this something that I should be interested in? Is this something I should trade or hold or what do I, you know, and people start to research it and then more people sort of pile in, right? And so on and so forth. And it's sort of a, a feedback loop of, okay, as the price keeps going up, more and more people get interested in it and start buying it or, or you know, doing something around it. Um, and that would cause for sure exponential price increase and then also so the price overshooting where maybe it should end up. Um, but then during the periods of time where the price isn't really doing anything and it's just sort of kind of trading in a pattern like anything else, people aren't as interested and it's not as volatile. Yeah. And if you look at um, measures of risk adjusted returns like the Sharp ratio, Bitcoin is much higher than any other asset class. So you're getting paid for that volatility with higher returns. Um, now, I've had people argue with me on Twitter about the Sharpe ratio, and there's, <laughs> there's some haters out there who don't like the Sharpe ratio. Um, but I think it's a familiar concept to people intuitively. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, like it's the idea that you're going to get paid per you know risk that you take. So, and so I mean, I, I get it. Standard deviation is a bad measure of risk. So I'm, I'm kind of in that camp too. But there's... There are a lot of other more complicated ways to do it, but this is just sort of an easy way of looking at it, right? And I feel like sometimes that's the the right way to go when you're just kind of trying to evaluate something on the cuff. Yeah. Now, I think the the next question or thing that gets brought up is, all right, well, let's say fiat is incentivizing people to not hold and to go spend, go invest. Bitcoin is incentivizing people to hold and to not consume, and to not invest. And isn't that a problem? Isn't it a problem that we're <laughs> causing people to to do less economic activity? Well, this is something that we've talked a lot about at the dinner table. Like, I don't believe that people really need any incentive to consume. People love to spend their money. I mean, honestly, right? It's fun to spend your money. If you... <laughs> especially if you like you have you know kids or something like that I mean people just like they just can't help themselves with their kids they got to buy all sorts of stuff for them or even if you're just a single person at home like you like a new video game you like a new pair of sneakers I don't know what it is you know but people still like to do those things and they don't need an incentive to go out there and buy it or you want to attract a spouse oh yeah yeah get a nice car mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> that works right? like pimp out the interior yeah, yeah. get the fuzzy dice <laughs> i don't know that people get the fuzzy dice anymore oh okay i don't know i don't know i mean um, we have a minivan so what do i know yeah we should get some fuzzy dice <laughs> we probably should get fuzzy dice for the minivan yeah people people don't have any um it, they don't need any additional motivation to to go consume um, so on the investment side, people will be like, well, you know, we need to push people to invest. Otherwise, uh, we don't see enough uh, risk taking in the economy. And then that means that we don't see enough innovation and the economy doesn't grow without more investment. 
Yeah, so on that side, I feel like people don't need an incentive either. People love the idea of like taking on risk and making more money. So in that like in that capacity as well, it's like they like to spend their money and they also like to, you know, figure out a way to beat the market and find the investment that's going to make them more money. Um, I, maybe you can chime in here about that as well. But that, I mean, that's what I've seen over and over again for my clients and just from people's behavior in general around their money is that they both like to spend it and invest it for the for the most part. Well, I mean, in terms of risk-seeking behavior, um, if we look at how many traders there are in the Bitcoin market, it's clear that there's just no shortage of risk-seeking behavior, despite the return profile of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? So if these people were correct, that Bitcoin incentivizing people to hold is a problem, then we actually would not see the amount of trade volume that goes on in Bitcoin. Yeah, and volatility, yeah, ultimately. Right, yeah. because everyone would be just holding because they know it's going to go up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's often talked about is the the person who um, wants to just hold cash on the sidelines. I always hear this on like CNBC or the other. Oh, there's so much cash on the sidelines, cash on the sidelines, people that haven't put their money to work, that kind of a thing. And I think we overestimate the amount of people who are out there who are literally afraid of investing. There, I think there are a lot more people who are just lured by the thought that they can make more money that end up doing it even if it is beyond their risk tolerance. Yeah, and that that's a key principle in financial planning is the risk tolerance. Can you talk about what risk tolerance is and why it differs among people? Yeah, definitely. So risk tolerance is made up of um, both your ability to take risk and your willingness to take risk. So somebody's ability to take risk is based on how, um, let's say, how frequently they get paid or how stable their income is, um, how um, how long they've been investing, um, what they understand about markets, all that kind of ties into ability, how much assets they have on a whole, right? Somebody who has $1 to their name versus somebody who has a billion dollars to their name, the person who has a billion dollars has more ability to take risk because they have more capital. And then making an investment isn't going to significantly impact their financial situation. Whereas somebody who maybe only has $100 to invest, right? <laughs> they lose that $100, they've got nothing. So um, that's all ability. Then there's willingness. And willingness is kind of the thing that people often go on. People don't really like to look at ability. They like to only really look at the willingness. Willingness is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's like, do you seek out risk type behavior? Or are you the kind of person who's, you know, a little turtle in your shell and you just want to stick your head and your arms and legs in? So um, both of those things combined make up your risk tolerance um, and really does affect how you're able to go out there in the market and what you're able to put your assets in and everything else. What I find weird about the, the fiat way of thinking of like, well, if if people have a low willingness to take on risk, we need to punish them and we need to get them out of their shell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to like force them to poke their arms and legs out because otherwise they're going to lose purchasing power forever. Yeah. Uh, and, and the fallacy, I think, is that we have to do that because if we don't do that, then there won't be enough capital for uh, businesses to to grow. And the reason I think that's a fallacy is because um, ultimately, uh, as, as one economist put it, price is clear. Mm. And so all they're doing is they're driving down risk-adjusted returns by diluting essentially the capital base, um, by pushing more uh, money after the same number of investments. Because it's not like if we get more investors that there's more economically viable investments that appear. 
Instead, you just drive up the prices of the existing set of investments. Yeah, or um, things that really shouldn't have gotten investment end up getting investment. Yes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like mm -hmm. if we look at the subprime market, like mm -hmm. that, that it's, yeah. it's, or yeah, that's uh, for absolutely the case that you, you drive down the quality of investments. Oh, totally. Yeah. And the metaphor I use is poker. Um, in a game of poker, you have the blinds and the blinds are that every turn somebody has to put in a little bit of their chip stack in, into it, whether they play their hand or not. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make a game of poker move more quickly, that, that is, you want people to play more hands, then you raise the blind. And so then you're eating away at their stack more quickly and they're going to take on more risk. Yeah. And that's the way I see inflation. And it drives down the quality of the hands of the investments being played um, in order to make things happen more quickly, which would make sense if you have a three hour poker game, <laughs> but it doesn't make sense if you have an indefinite investment game. Yeah. Or, you know, a 70 year time horizon. If you're <laughs> 30, yeah. 30 year but old, just getting started. You an, know? an insurance company, they, they don't have a 70 years. They have infinite. Yeah, they have infinite. And there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of institutions that operate under that or trusts where you have basically a mandate in perpetuity. So, I mean, yeah, the game is forever. And um, I would even argue for individuals, it's forever too. So um, my employee and I, we talk about this a lot. We kind of laugh about it of like, you always have a long time horizon, even if you don't think you do. So um, so for example, my dad's a dentist and um, he had this woman who came into her, his office and she was 84 and he had to fix, he wanted to fix something in her mouth and it was going to be really expensive. And she was like, how long will I live? How long will I live? You know? Um, and the woman ended up living another 20 years. So like she should have actually fixed her teeth at that period of time. Um, so it's kind of one of those things too, where it's like, if you're an individual, right, you don't, you don't a know how long you're going to live B if you want to leave money to the next generation right now, you're even more extending the time horizon on something. Um, and then retirement is always talked about like, Oh, okay. There's, you know, once you get to retirement, you have to lower your risk tolerance, but retirement's also a really long period of time, depending on when you retire. I mean, you could be talking about anywhere between 30, 20 and 30 years, which again is a long period of time when you're talking about investing. So that's just a long way of saying that time horizons are infinite. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, so, you know, if, if we establish that this inflationary pressure drives down the quality of investments, I think that in the, the, the reverse is true as well. Uh, if you have a money that incentivizes people to hold cash, then the quality of investments is going to go up because they're going to wait longer before putting that cash to work. And they're going to wait for better investment opportunities. Mm. That is that uh, on a risk-adjusted basis, they have a higher expected value uh, than, uh, th than with an inflationary money or even with a money that just holds its value. Because like with Bitcoin, it's like its value is increasing by a lot right now. At but, least right now, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that if we had the entire economy working on this principle that we would actually have higher quality investments and thus um, the the macroeconomic cycles would not be what they are today, uh, which is ironic because, um, you know, people say that it would be worse with Bitcoin because of Bitcoin's volatility. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point for sure. Because I think that like we would rather have a volatile money purchasing power than a volatile investment market. Um, all else equal. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, I I think it kind of, I think it kind of depends for um, person to person, but they, I think you get used to whatever environment you live in, right? So if it, if it were to flip the other way where we would have a more volatile purchasing power environment rather than a more volatile investment environment, it might feel really uncomfortable to the people who are going through the process of switching at first. But over time, you kind of just get used to the environment that you're living in. And then that's just the way that it is. The other theory is that Bitcoin's volatility is going to go down when it reaches 100% adoption. Because at that point, there won't be as much of the momentum traders coming in and out, uh, and there'll be a much larger base of people holding Bitcoin. Well, at that point, if so I guess I'm, my question to you is like, what are you imagining 100% adoption being? Is that like there's no longer any other fiat currencies, and it's basically Bitcoin's price against other cryptocurrencies that happen to be dragged along with it? Uh, yes. And I also, I, I don't just see Bitcoin as a, as, as competing with other, with, with fiat essentially in the sense of, I look at the balance sheet and, you know, we've been saying that people hold as little cash as possible in the fiat system. And so for most people, it's as small of a part of percentage of their balance sheet as they can get away with. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially like if you look and it's it's actually it's very um, I think inflation is a very regressive tax because somebody who is just starting out in the workforce, uh, they're 100 percent cash and they're living paycheck to paycheck. But that means that they're living uh, off of their cash balance and drawing it down. And so their weighted average cash balance is 100 percent of their balance sheet. Yeah, it's also it's a lot harder to get ahead. Um, it's definitely regressive from that perspective. And also that if you're just I mean, if you're just working the kind of job where you can't seem to save, right, and you've been doing it for a long time, it's just so much harder for you to get ahead because every year you really are supposed to be increasing your emergency fund, right? Because that emergency fund is lo- losing 2% purchasing power. Um, so you're just you're like you're constantly fighting against inflation to like get money to put away to then invest. Um, and then, you know, I think also the issue there is that when people work so hard to put away this cash and then, you know, they happen to invest at a bad time, for instance, and they see that cash basically just obliterate in front of their eyes. Um, the the first cycle for people going through that, it's, it's very painful um, and not something that is it could actually scare somebody. Out of, like that's really what turns people into those turtles, right, of that they don't want to invest is like they go through that first experience of saving all their money, doing everything they could to get to that place where they even could invest. And then it, they watched it kind of dwindle. Yeah. And, and Bitcoin doesn't fix that, uh, for someone who's, uh, (laughs) you know, buying at the top of the, uh, cycle. Um, but if, if they hold through the cycle, then, uh, they'll see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, the other thing is uh, on the high end of people who, who do have a lot of assets, you know, they might put like 2% in cash. And so to me, Bitcoin is competing with the other, I mean, that 2% and the 98% mm-hmm. of real estate, people using real estate as a store of value, people, you know, buying an apartment. Uh, the, the worst case is the apartment in Manhattan that lays empty and they're yep. just using it as a money box. Um, but even somebody using real estate as you know, we were talking about earlier of thinking that it's an investment Mm -hmm. rather than a depreciating, you know, capital good, consumer good. Um, People using artwork. Oh, yeah. But also like 
I went to Target the other day and uh, there was a sign on the door that said, you can only buy two packs of card collectibles <laughs> per customer. And I asked the, the, the employee, <laughs> like, what is that about? I'm like, well, there's like a run on these card collectibles. So the whole spectrum of, of the uh, collectibles market. Yeah, maybe the Fed doesn't need to intervene to get people to buy those. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's really hard because for them, they're like, well, okay, you know, covid and we need to provide relief so people like need to pay rent and buy food but they don't have a way of targeting their relief to the specific people who need to pay their rent and yeah, buy food yeah for sure well i think that's also kind of the problem with these stimulus checks is that the government is deciding who needs that needs it versus who may or may actually need it um like for instance i have a client right now who like his business is is struggling if they actually looked at him on paper, they would say, okay, well, you know, he doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for me to send any kind of money to him. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need a, an extra PPP or SBA, like one of these loans that's out there, but he actually does. And he employs a lot of people, right? So by them not extending him a second one of these or not giving him as much as he got the first time around, right? It's actually hurting by extension, all the other employees who work for him. Um, and so, it's it's interesting though to me because like the government thinks that they know who needs it the most and they do their best to get it to those people but they don't really know and so they kind of need to make a decision of like either we're going to intervene or not right and if we're going to intervene maybe we do it on a little more of a widespread basis knowing that like maybe we end up giving it to people who don't need it but the people who do need it do get it yeah and this this goes to the uh issue of well why do people hold money at all and um, because if the government's saying, all right, we're trying to push people to not hold in cash because we're trying to stimulate the economy, then when there's a hiccup in the economy, then people aren't holding any cash and they need to go sell assets in mm -hmm. order to get cash. And then that makes the problem worse because everyone's doing that at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what we saw in March and April of 2020, right? With the with COVID, it was basically that people stopped working. They stopped being able to, you know, they, they depleted their savings immediately. And then they had no money to pay rent, to pay mortgage, to pay every, everything else. And then the economists are like, well, there's a cash shortage. It's like, yeah, who created that cash shortage? Mm -hmm. Ironically, the, the past inflation created it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nice, though, to live in a society where you didn't have to worry about people's savings because it was incentivized? Yeah, like strongly incentivized yeah. uh, by by real returns, not by, uh, you know, government mandating, uh, hey, you have to hold an emergency fund or your financial planner hectoring you into holding yeah. <laughs> that, the, you know, you were rewarded uh, by the system for for holding a rainy day fund um and th fundamentally that's why people hold cash and it's not just people corporations nonprofits any kind of economic entity mm -hmm. they hold Operating cash. cash flow basically yeah yeah so i mean the other thing to keep in mind just throwing a little financial planning tidbit here since we're on it is the higher your expenses are right the more operating cash flow you have to keep on hand so companies who have high expenses they do this they keep more cash on hand because they have to make payroll pay for large you know fixed expenses pay for all the things you know to make sure their business keeps running it's the same thing with personal financial planning in your household if you've committed to large fixed expenses you know um, if you spend a lot of money you have to have that much more in emergency savings that you can't invest so 
like you may think that having a hundred thousand dollars is a big is a lot of money that you can you know then go out and invest because you finally hit that goal of having a hundred k. But meanwhile, if you're spending a hundred thousand dollars in six months, that's now your emergency savings fund, right? So it's one of those things where you kind of have to it's a it's a balancing act for sure of knowing how much money you have to keep on hand at any given period of time, and then also like dealing with the fact that you're you're rapidly losing purchasing power by doing it at the same time. Yeah, and that's you know short-term savings right mm-hmm. of um and the 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 worst part to me of like of the inflationary pressure on short-term savings which is a necessity it's not even a nice to have like you have to have that rainy day fund um e- despite inflation mm-hmm. um is that you you roll that fund so because it's rolling year to year and is losing 2% every year. And as you mentioned, you have to keep adding to it. It's a huge drain. Um, now, more broadly, I think that there's a need for long-term savings. Yes. And there, th- that is what has pushed people into fixed income and even equities investing of putting their long-term savings into the market because, well, I don't want to roll my long-term savings you know, for a decade or two. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you you literally can't have long-term savings. Long-term savings in our current environment is investment. So, um, and anyone who's doing it any other way is basically, I mean, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So there's there's almost no way around that in the current system. Whereas like with Bitcoin, right, you can just put some Bitcoin in cold storage and that's your long-term savings. Yeah, and with Bitcoin, it, it almost it disincentivizes short-term savings, right, because of the volatility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the people that are concerned about the volatility, they're only thinking about short-term savings and using it day-to-day for payments. If they think about the long-term savings aspect of it, well, then that's when they start looking at the risk-adjusted returns, and they're like, well, okay, over four years, if you hold Bitcoin for four years, historically, you've always come out ahead. And if you accumulate bitcoin for four years so i'm saying like if you buy the top in 2017 Mm -hmm. then you're okay in 2021 yep yeah but if you bought the top in 2017 and continue to accumulate throughout the bear market then you're doing fantastically well oh yeah you would have been better way better off before 2021 yeah Mm -hmm. um and so that kind of gets into the the dollar cost averaging and and being disciplined about saving every month uh more money um but it, it does kind of align, though, with how people do things in general, right? You make money on a regular basis and you're putting, hopefully putting a portion of that towards savings every time you make money or almost every single time you make money, right? Depending on what your expenses look like or how you get paid. Um, and then you should, if you, I mean, if you don't have short-term savings, right? At first you're funding short-term savings, but after that, right now you're funding long-term savings and you're basically dollar cost averaging into your long-term savings over a long period of time so that eventually you can go spend that money on something. Yeah, I, I think that the the debate among Bitcoiners is um, lump sum versus dollar cost averaging for somebody who is new to Bitcoin and has an existing portfolio. Got so it. Yeah, yeah. You that. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like basically you've saved a bunch of money in fiat, you've invested in a stock bond portfolio. How much of that do you take out or versus whether or not you dollar cost average? I mean, I think that depends on the person for sure. So um, when I allocated client accounts, we took out of the portfolio of stocks and bonds and we put it into Bitcoin. And then people who are accumulators from there, we dollar cost averaged into Bitcoin. 
Um, so I think that it kind of depends on whether or not you're accumulating. If you're accumulating, then yeah, you should be, that should be part of your accumulating plan. If you're, um, if you're somebody who's already accumulated all your assets and you're looking to like, you're now living off your assets, right? You could still take a portion of that. That would be where you did lump sum. That makes sense. Um, oh, I was going to mention like why, so we can we know why short-term savings is important and having an emergency fund, you know, your car breaks down, you have an unexpected medical expense. Long-term savings, I think, is important because you don't necessarily know what future investment opportunities there are going to be or um, what you're going to want to do big picture, you know, may, maybe real estate, maybe starting your own business, maybe sending your kid off to college mm-hmm. where... Um, you don't necessarily want to be investing in the stock market. And this is where we get to like, what's the difference between buying and holding Bitcoin versus buying and holding stocks or bonds? And because people just look at a price chart and they're, it's, they're both price charts, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, yeah. both, they're both some ratio between your fiat and this asset. And, and so to them, it's like both are investing. And I hear people talk about like, I'm investing in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm like, well, that's not really investing because I approach it from like the the autistic accountant, right? <laughs> Who's like, <laughs> investing is a very specific thing. Investing is when you're buying the equity or liability of a person or of a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes with specific, you know, risks of a performance risk, counterparty risk, mm-hmm. and all of these other things that are not relevant to buying a money. Yeah, well, Bitcoin has its own set of risks, right? That are that are different than for sure. Well, I, so and then if we get into like what are are Bitcoin's risks and what are Bitcoin's uncertainties? For example, you know, uh, a bug in the software, for example, would mm-hmm. be um, a risk related to Bitcoin or an uncertainty since it's not quantifiable. Uh, um, the regulatory environment, which we will hopefully get to, <laughs> since yeah. we've been droning on and on for an hour. <laughs> but but my view is that the if you add up all the risks and uncertainties for Bitcoin, they are less than any other asset in the world, and that's why I see it as being uh, the the most undervalued asset, and also why I think it is the money. Uh, in the sense that that's what you would want to have with the money of having the lowest risk and uncertainty compared to any other asset. It still has risks and uncertainties. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying if we go through the checklist and we look at all these other asset classes, no matter how diversified you are, you've got more risks and uncertainties with them than you do with Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, in some regards, that's that's probably true. Yeah, that's probably true. We could go through. We could go through the <laughs> checklist. Um, but it's and, and it's it's challenging because people focus on that one risk, the exchange rate risk. Yeah, the exchange rate risk is is what people tend to focus on the most. Um, definitely people focus on like a, the regulatory environment and whether or not like the government could just come in and say, OK, no more. Done. Shutting it down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like to me, you know, that gets into systemic risk. Um, and 
uh, obviously stocks and bonds don't have that systemic risk in the same way. Yeah, they like... don't have that in the same way. But I mean, people don't talk about that as a risk to the stock and bond market, but it is. It's a huge risk of like maybe the government doesn't come in and say, OK, stock, stocks and bonds are done, but they keep intervening in ways that make it like bonds basically are they're heading there right because of their interventions bonds are heading in that direction so um maybe they're not like explicitly stating hey we're gonna shut this thing down but i mean eventually they're it's gonna get shut down well uh, historically yeah some of the examples of systemic risk we've seen there is for example they they will they will close the market if it's moving too much Mm -hmm. they will have a bank holiday um yeah uh game stop um uh they you know they'll ban short selling um in not in the U.S., but in other countries, we have seen governments seize retirement accounts and seize assets in retirement accounts. Um, and so, I'm not saying that's going to happen in the U.S. because the U.S. you know we're we're very special here, so nothing. <laughs> but um, so so we 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 do see some systemic risk of things getting shut down. Um, the reason I think Bitcoin is more impervious to that risk. Is, and this is where we have to like separate out the Bitcoin system versus the interface between the fiat system and the Bitcoin system. Mm-hmm. Because, and this is the same thing as like, okay, we could look at Bitcoin's exchange rate risk or we could look at its monetary policy risk. Yeah. Because the monetary policy is set by the system. And when I say the Bitcoin system, what I mean is this network of Bitcoin nodes, peer-to-peer nodes. And this this kind of gets technical, but this is where I think that the rubber hits the road of when we're looking at, all right, stocks versus Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so stocks, I mean, you've got to look at, well, there's a management team and they're operating in an environment that is very competitive and, you know, nothing's guaranteed. They might lose all their revenues or their costs might increase or they might get sued. So that's when we start looking at like, under the hood, mm-hmm. what is driving this chart that we're looking at? Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the ways around like that individual security risk, right, is that we've created the index fund and that if you hold a basket of companies, then you no longer have to worry about individual systemic risk in the company. Um, whereas, but now, right, what you, what you trade that for, though, is essentially market risk, which is, um, which lately is government intervention, right? It's like you're kind of at the whim of when the government's printing money or they're not. That's that's right. I would also point out that you still have the risk of, for example, a private VC owned company coming out of Silicon Valley, taking market share from your publicly traded, you know, index investing uh, invested companies and they don't IPO until they're at full value. Mm -hmm. And then they're just okay. well, now they're you're, you're forced to buy their shares overvalued. Um, and sell your shares in, in you know in, in this market cap weighted um, index, and I so I still think that there's like risks like that that are still going to arguably be amplified by the structure of the market and where things are going uh, right now. But yeah, definitely that's a good point. Um, where was I heading with that? Oh yeah, the regulatory risk. Yeah. So I guess we should hop into that now since we did say we would do that. Yeah. People look at the worst case scenario of governments banning Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I hear from clients all the time. I was like, well, what if they just come in and they say no more Bitcoin? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you're like, uh, okay, well, so far they're not doing that. I mean, why is that not even really a thing? Let's... Yeah, I, I think that's when we do have to go under the hood and look at what is Bitcoin, um, the system itself, not the the asset that is being traded, mm-hmm. um, but the mechanics of the system. And it's a combination of this network of nodes and these Bitcoin miners. Uh, we could talk about the energy consumption of the Bitcoin miners uh, another time, maybe yeah. next episode. Okay, next episode. Um, but the network of nodes is really what um, enables it to to be decentralized. And that's that's kind of the buzzword, right? Is it, mm-hmm. oh, it's this decentralized... DeFi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's this decentralized network. And the the... What it means from a government perspective is that it is free speech it, because it is this network that is on the Internet of people passing information to each other voluntarily. Um, and there's not there's no um, there's no corporation that's mm-hmm. backing it. There's no um, brand copyright. Mm-hmm. Right. There's uh, like there are laws saying that you can't uh, call your thing the U.S. dollar. Like that's that's called counterfeiting, right? <laughs> um, there's no law saying it, you can't call your thing Bitcoin. Oh, I mean, we, we've seen that, right? Yes. So we've seen people say like, "This is Bitcoin cash." cash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so what enforces the 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 validity of the asset is if you run a Bitcoin node, you're actually uh, subscribing to a set of what are called consensus rules. And so these are um, computer science rules about what the system looks like, what how it operates, and what is Bitcoin, what is actually a Bitcoin. And those are agreed upon subjectively. So there's not like some objective force saying this is what it is. Instead, it's a bunch of people on the internet agreeing that it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But we have the same thing with language. Like there's, there's not... Um, and actually, this is not true in French. In French, there's uh, a, the French Academy that decides what oh, words yeah. mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, they're very proper. <laughs> yeah. In English, it's like, well, you know, what what would a reasonable person think? Like, they all, that's what they, it comes down to. You know, so if I say laptop and I ship you a rock, then... <laughs> th- <laughs> That's fraud. That's fraud. Not because there's a statute that says a laptop means an electronic device that is sits in your lap. No, it's because a reasonable person would agree that a laptop is so. I mean, if you cut that rock and then maybe put like a Playmobil sticker on the inside, presumably. <laughs> this sounds like a great business opportunity. <laughs> um, and so it's the same thing with Bitcoin where. There's not a legal definition of what Bitcoin is. It is a social intersubjective definition of it. And that's not to take away from it. I actually think that's a huge strength that it has. And um, it certainly has not prevented it from becoming a trillion dollar asset. Uh, And so the strength of it is that it is enforced using cryptography. Mm. And it's kind of, in a sense, it's objective in the sense that um, that's the software you're running. Those are the rules hard-coded into the software that you're running. Um, and the only subjective part is you deciding to run that specific version of the software versus other versions of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think also, like, when you explain it as um, really information being passed back and forth, it, it's something that a, kind of an everyday person can understand as opposed to, like, when... 
I feel like when people like when the white paper came out originally and people were trying to explain to me what this thing was and it was so technical and I remember just being like what uh so for like the average lay person like me or pea brain like me um we need you know something that we could like if I feel like clients can understand something like that or when we talk about okay well it's just a ledger right with a bunch of information on it there's nothing that like there's nothing that crazy about bitcoin when you really think about what it is under the hood um and that people they assign value to this because of some of the other properties that bitcoin has that's right and and so the the one of the properties of of being decentralized is that anyone can run a node Mm -hmm. so you could have a node running on a very small piece of computer, you know, like a Raspberry Pi or a laptop or your desktop computer or even your phone. If you have a, a good enough smartphone, you can be running a Bitcoin node. Um, and what that allows you to do is verify the whole ledger history. And that's Bitcoin's core value proposition, really, is that you're democratizing the ability to verify the ledger. And in the fiat system, uh, there's a select few who can verify the ledgers. Yeah, if, if any, if even they can. Um, <laughs> I think that's something that's really beautiful, though, about Bitcoin. I mean, people, like, if you think about the Occupy Wall Street movements and other things, like, people are really upset about what's going on in the system, and rightfully so. I mean, it's really hard to understand, like, really anything that's going on behind the scenes. It's a black box of, you know, the Fed and everything else, and people blame the banks for a lot of different things, and, you know, some rightfully so, and some things, you know, are just kind of misinformation, I think, at least. But that Bitcoin is kind of one of these things where you don't really need to be involved. You don't need to, you don't, it you can you could just go out and start and you know open a wallet and go buy some and you can like better yourself you don't need to actually be part of this big old system and have to understand all the intricacies of it and know people and network and everything else yeah so the 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 node allows you to verify the whole system it also specifically allows you to verify your own transactions that people are sending to you so selfishly you want to be aware of whether you're being scammed or not and, oh totally yeah um but globally it allows you to make sure also that nobody's just creating bitcoin out of thin air um and that gets into the mining and the energy consumption and how to create bitcoin you know that the person has consumed electricity mm-hmm. anyway we won't get go too deep into that we'll do that another day yeah but um the challenge for regulators is okay if anyone can run a node and you know everyone has access to the internet at this point or almost everyone mm-hmm. so uh anyone can just download this open source software the source code is on the internet um, get the node launcher yeah <laughs> um we'll talk about that later too uh, <laughs> so um the challenge for them is that okay well we, we can't make it illegal to run this software uh it's it 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 would require them to completely change the law on a philosophical level. It also, I mean, would violate human rights, let's be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, they would have to go door to door and be like, hey, we suspect of you have run the software. And they ran into this issue with the, the copyright infringement of people downloading, uh, stealing movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, to- uh, not Tor, but, um, uh, BitTorrent. BitTorrent, yeah. Um, and, and what fixed that was Netflix and Spotify. It wasn't, uh, them actually cracking down on, on it and stopping it from happening. Yeah. And I think people still do that, no? Yeah. People still do yeah. it. Um, but they did definitely, uh, 
the the ISPs were very heavy handed in um, you know enforcing that uh, and and finding people. The problem here is that there's no copyright infringement going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because there are already laws in place basically stating that you can't copy illegally people's copyrighted material. Yeah, so they they'd have to pass a new law. Yeah, somehow and saying okay, this specifically this Bitcoin stuff is illegal. Um, and so they could they could try to do that and and drive it underground. Um, the problem that they have is that they're in a catch twenty two, where if Bitcoin is a big enough problem that they should pass this law, mm-hmm. then that means that they're bullish on Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, from kind of a selfish legislator perspective, and let's face it, legislators are humans too. Yeah. They're not some kind of divine entity that is always you know, <laughs> optimizing for the best of society. Um, we, it, yeah, wouldn't we be so lucky? Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes more sense for them to to buy some Bitcoin than to ban it if they well, understand it. Though. They own some. Yeah, quite a few legislators do own some. Uh, the you U.S. Know, government owns a bunch. Th- yes. So uh, interestingly enough, the U.S. government owns um, I think it's seventy thousand Bitcoin seized Bitcoin. Yeah, seized yep. Bitcoin, uh, and we could talk about that too. <laughs> um, so uh, in any case. In terms of what is actually going on in the U.S. specifically is that there's there's no talk of banning it among regulators um, and among legislators. Okay, so if they're not going to come in and say, no more Bitcoin, we're banning this outright, what is more likely to happen? So we could. I kind of look at like what has been happening and just kind of assume that that's what's going to continue to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they want to do is that they want to control the exchange between Bitcoin and fiat. And they want to have as much visibility into that as possible. And um, that's, I think, a major point of friction. Now, the um, in the traditional financial world, when you open a bank account or you open a brokerage account, you have to prove your identity. Yes. And so you might provide a driver's license, your social security number, and uh, that's th- that's you how. Fill out a whole application. You tell them what industry you work in. You tell them whether or not you are working. If you're not working, you have to explain how you got this money. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, if you are creating a Bitcoin wallet and with your own private keys, um, you don't have to do that. Mm. Uh, and you can do that on any modern computing device. And so that part is completely unregulated. But if you want to open an account at a Bitcoin exchange in order to be able to transfer your fiat to that account and then trade it for Bitcoin and then withdraw the Bitcoin to your wallet, now you have to do the same thing you have to do with your bank account or your brokerage account. Well, let's be honest, though. Most people are going to have to do that, right? Because with the exception of somebody whose friend down the street is willing to just sell them some of their Bitcoin, Right. For everybody else, they have to if they want to acquire Bitcoin in some capacity, they have to do it through an exchange. True today. But let's say there there's two other ways to acquire Bitcoin. One is selling goods and services. Ah, True. Yes. That's a good point. And so if you have your e-commerce website, you could actually create your own Bitcoin wallet and um, not have to KYC AML 
and people, you know, buy goods and services from you. And uh, that's how you would earn Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And then you can sell it, send it to a wallet and nobody would be the wiser that you had it. But you would technically, I mean, you'd be reporting, well, I guess you'd be reporting the dollar version of that. Right. For the IRS Mm -hmm. um, that that those were your revenues. Yep. Um, And then same thing for on the payroll side. So um, if your employer is paying you in Bitcoin uh, directly to your own wallet, then you wouldn't need to have an account. Uh, It would just be like if your employer was paying you cash. Yeah. So anyone listening to this should um, talk to their employer about getting that going. Yeah. Um, And we've we've seen some employers uh, taking it up. But it's I definitely agree that as a practical matter, uh, most people are going on an exchange and buying Bitcoin and going through the KYC process. Yeah, yeah. I also think as a business owner, it probably also depends what business you're in, right? Like, I feel like in, if you're a financial planner like me, um, we're we're regulated on a completely other level. And if I had, like, clients paying me in Bitcoin, I think that there would be some eyebrows raised. Yeah, I, I think, though, that they're gonna have to change the regulations yeah i think they're going to have to too but right now it's it's still well i mean i think that's kind of the point that we've been making about this since the beginning is that it's still such early days right it's it's early days in this process and things are going to evolve over time um and that the regulations are going to have to change yeah uh to be more favorable towards bitcoin and right right now they're trying to change them to be less favorable towards bitcoin so they're trying to disincentivize people from holding their own wallets uh, holding their own private keys uh, by making them jump through more hoops. Now, this is like proposed regulation, so it's not in place, but mm. that's kind of the direction they're trying to go in. I honestly, so I think this kind of goes back to like what people want to do versus what people don't like, don't really, in, they're not as inclined to do, like with the, in the inflationary example, like people are inclined to spend their money. People actually don't really want to take that much ownership over their assets. Um, it's one of the reasons why they work with somebody like me, right? Is that they want me to do things on their behalf and they don't have to want to have to worry about it. Um, most people I know, um, most of my clients, they buy from a place like Coinbase or Kraken or whatever, Gemini, and then they literally hold their coins there because they, they're more worried that they're going to do something wrong when they, like when they send those coins off, like then the exchange itself seizing them for whatever reason. Well, we, we got to get them trained up yeah. so that the, they're, they're more comfortable with it. But I also think that, they will see the necessity of it more when they see, for example, well, most of them were not around for Mt. Gox, mm-hmm. right? And I yeah. think that when you see that happen in real time, like like the OGs did, that's when they start thinking, well, okay, I need to start taking more ownership because now I'm seeing this risk is not a hypothetical risk. It's a risk that could be realized. Um, where I no longer have access to this asset that I thought I, you know, owned. Yeah, well, I think the other thing it gets into is like, okay, if you bought Bitcoin because it had all these other different properties versus regular standard assets, but then you left it at an institution or a custodian, right now you're adding those same risks that you actually, you were trying to avoid, right? Like counterparty risk and custodian risk and some of these, you know? Some of those risks. Some of those risks, not all of them, not for sure. All of them. Because I think the the biggest risk is the dilution risk. And yeah, so you're still yeah. now some people say, well, you know, what about uh, they call it paper Bitcoin. So like where uh, the institution would be like fractional reserve, essentially, you know, and all of this. So there is kind of that 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 dilution risk. But um, broadly speaking, like, yes. Yeah, that's that's true that you're um, 
you're going back into the fiat world by not holding your own keys. But I think that there there needs to be like a huge amount of um, training in a sense of people testing it out, you know, doing a little bit of value uh, and getting more comfortable with it so that they can de-risk holding their own keys. Uh, and that might also involve products and better technologies and whatnot. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, to get back to the regulation, though, I mean, the first thing that we've seen, right, that is like the IRS is trying to make it a little bit more scary by having that little checkbox on yeah. your tax return this year. So, um, I mean, you're only obligated to check this checkbox if you um, sold cryptocurrency in the year of 2020. Now, I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to get anyone in trouble, <laughs> but I don't think you're obligated to to tick that checkbox in any case because as long as you're actually reporting the gains or losses on the return i don't see why they think that checkbox is constitutional and why it is necessary and proper to to their um operating yeah i mean if you're selling you're going to report it anyways on schedule d in which case they're going to see it so yeah. there's kind of, I mean, unless they're they're trying to data mine and just easily put some people in a database with that checkbox. I think they're... They have the data anyways of who's selling. I think they're trying to intimidate people. I think that they, they're they trying to intimidate not people who already are in Bitcoin. New people. New people or potential new people. Mm-hmm. Where, oh, no, I have to check this box. Ah. Yeah, you know, they're they're doing their <laughs> tax return and they're like... Ooh, like okay, I guess that's risky, right? Like that, mm, the IRS is keeping a close eye on that. Maybe I'll get audited if I buy Bitcoin. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to get audited. Not because I'm doing anything wrong, but because I don't want to get audited. Because it's an annoying pain in the ass, and it's expensive when you like have an accountant who's doing it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think that there's an element of them wanting to disincentivize people from mm-hmm. getting involved, um, and. I, I get their point of view, um, but really, I mean, in the U.S., they're they're here to serve us. We're not here to serve them. In Are you sure? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> now we're going to get audited. I know. I know. Why are we doing this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that. But uh, so I mean, and they could also raise the taxes, right? They could say, uh, you know, capital gains on stocks and bonds are X percentage. And capital gains on cryptocurrency trading is twice that. You know, mm-hmm. they could try to punish people. Um, ironically, that would push people towards holding more and yeah, trading less. Yeah, trading less, holding more, which is honestly, I mean, in people's best interests. So, <laughs> hmm. well, um, and so, yeah, I think that they, they're going to want to constantly go in that direction of disincentivizing people uh, from getting involved. But um, the... The, again, it goes back to both the fundamentals are better than a lot of other assets. I'd argue all the other assets. Um, and the financial performance of the risk reward has been better than all other assets over the past decade. Yeah. Well, so to get back to the regulation piece, though, right? So one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about regulations was because there was this and volatility was because there was a 10% dip very recently because of regulatory concerns. Some... Yeah. Um, well, so, so the, the the regulatory concerns that we talked about was somebody on TV saying that because Coinbase became publicly listed, this is going to attract more uh, regulator attention 
and cause them to crack down on it or something like that. Yeah. I heard that too also from my parents. So it obviously must be true. It must be true. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, if we look at how Washington, D.C. works, it works with lobbyists and industry people lobbying in different directions. And so I think that legislators, they're definitely, there are fiat banking lobbyists mm-hmm. who are constantly saying negative things about Bitcoin to legislators. I know that's happening. I've heard, oh, for sure. Yeah. I've, I've heard of these and I've seen some of the glimpses of the blog posts that they put out. It's pretty bad. Um, and frankly, it's 90% misinformation. And so they, they really, they're, they, you know, they're good at their jobs. Well, there was also that other bill. Remember that? I forget that guy's name, Rohan or whatever. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so... Th- I mean, people like him basically going out there and whispering thing, negative things about Bitcoin in people's ears. Yeah, so I would say like the... the it's interesting, the... There's both bipartisan skepticism of Bitcoin and bipartisan support of Bitcoin. Uh, So on both sides, there are haters and lovers. Um, On the, let's call it the radical left or the progressive wing, uh, there are people who are excited about Bitcoin because to them, it's a way of uh, empowering. Underbanked and underserved. Yep, for sure. And then there are others who see it as the privatization of money. Mm. And, oh, yeah. can't privatize anything. <laughs> can't privatize anything. <laughs> and that only the government should be allowed to print money. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, and that this is a huge problem and it needs to be legislated away. And so they, they propose this. Well, that's like the control aspect, right? If you don't have full control over everybody's financial situation, then why are we even here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which to me is... A little insecure on their part, right? They, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like if you think about even something like in your own life, right? Everyday people have kids, right? If you're trying to control every aspect, be the little puppeteer of your child, right? It doesn't usually turn out that well later on. No. Yeah. You'll drive yeah. them nuts. Yep. They won't come back. They'll, no. <laughs> they'll leave and they will not talk to you again. <laughs> um, now... Yeah, so the, the 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 that was the, like the stable act um, that you're referring to, but mm-hmm. that was dead in the water. Uh, that really got no support from anyone because I actually think that there's um, that's not it, true. There was one congresswoman that was very excited about it. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think eighty percent of people in Congress are like, hey, let's see where this goes. Bitcoin is exciting innovation. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think that's something that like. America on a whole is actually good at. Yeah. And and then you have 20% who are very concerned about losing control and about people being able to save their own money without uh, any kind of government intervention. And mm-hmm. won't that be terrible for the economy and all of this um, where they want to impose their ideology on everyone else? Or like these people who are saving aren't going to give to the programs I want to put forth and therefore it's not necessarily good for me as a congressperson. Yeah. And ironically, that that means that they're, they think that Bitcoin left unchecked that Bitcoin would outcompete the dollar. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, also, it assumes that people aren't people. I mean, I think this is something that we've come back to a bunch of times on this podcast is that there there are things that inherently people like to do. 
Um, and one of the things people really like to do with their money is they like to spend it on other people. Um, people get a lot of joy out of spending their money on other people, whether it is to actually donate it to a charity or it is to just give to, you know, like the local church or somebody down the block who needs help. People like doing that because they feel good about how they're using their money. So I think it's kind of this misconception that the government doesn't control the money, that therefore people won't be helping each other. Um, and inherently, that's just not true because evolutionarily, that's how we've survived as a human race. Yeah. And there's charity with money and there's also charity with time. Mm hmm. Um, and if having the ability and being incentivized to save your money allows you to retire early or to work fewer hours and to volunteer more time in whatever capacity, to Definitely. me, that's that's even more valuable than donating money. Yeah, for sure. And also, if you're constantly up against this inflationary environment where you're trying to catch up, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're must, much less likely to give. Yeah. Yeah. in that scenario than you are in a scenario where you're not up against all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on the regulation side, uh, TLDR, uh, <laughs> the, this, the status quo is that you have these fiat on and off ramps that are regulated. The Bitcoin network itself is not regulated by the government in any way. It's regulated by these nodes that are enforcing cryptographic rules um, and so it's kind of, um, it, people say, you'll hear people say Bitcoin's sovereign. And so, uh, this, this concept that it's really actually entirely separate from the nation states that we're used to thinking about in terms of regulations and that it's the users themselves that are, um, individually, but really collectively regulating this entire new monetary system, um, and interestingly enough, it's also software that gets upgraded. So there's new versions that are coming out and upgrades and changes to how it works. And so all of those upgrades, it's not like people uh, vote on them. And it's actually a huge debate about Bitcoin's governance that maybe mm. we can get into something else. Um, but what is regulated is when you're buying and selling Bitcoin uh, with fiat currencies. And I, actually, it's interesting that 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 is regulated because really it it shouldn't be. If you look at it objectively, it's like if you were buying and selling bananas at a fruit stand and the government being like, well, you have to get everyone's social security number and their ID in order for them to buy bananas. We are probably going in that direction. You <laughs> laugh now. <laughs> yeah. Your vaccine passport, yeah, your ID. You're going to have to show your social yeah. security card when you go to a local H-E-B. But if you're going to go vote, then you don't have to show anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Importantly. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to sign here and it sort of has to match. Yeah, it sort of has to match. Um, so uh, now the the other part that's regulated is derivatives. So the CFTC regulates derivatives um, on, on Bitcoin in the U.S. Um, and then there are uh, Bitcoin-related securities so, for example, there's GBTC that is um, a company or, or uh, a trust that holds Bitcoin mm -hmm. that's publicly traded. Well, so they kind of skirted around some rules, though, right? Because they started as um, something that only accredited investors would invest in. So, in, like, the reason why the ETF isn't out is because the SEC has to approve that. Whereas if you have an accredited investors only investing, then, yes, you still have to get your investment approved and stuff. But it, you don't have to jump through as many hoops and things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and then lastly, the the big piece of regulation is the taxes where you have to uh, report gains and losses 
And the crazy part about that is that if you, let's say you 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 buy Bitcoin in like 2012, mm-hmm. and then it's 2021, and you go buy a cup of coffee with you know some small fraction of the Bitcoin that you bought, you have to pay capital gains on oh, that five dollar yeah. cup of coffee. Yep. Um, there's no like de minimis rule, and that has caused people to use Bitcoin even less than they otherwise would. Um, well, because it's it's a currency, right? But it's still everything is being measured in USD. So if we actually get to a point where we are only using Bitcoin, then people who bought in 2012, theoretically in 2040 or whenever this is happening, um, I don't know, you probably think sooner than that, but (laughs) whenever it's happening, right, is that at that point, you wouldn't have to pay capital gains on that because we wouldn't be measuring it against the dollar anymore. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Now, it's also a double standard because with government currencies, like euros for example there is a de minimis rule mm, i think it's that's like true, yeah. 650 dollars worth of euros that you don't have to pay capital gains taxes on but the irs calls bitcoin property whereas the uh fincen that does the aml kyc stuff they say it's a virtual currency mm-hmm and so uh, yeah, different parts of the, the government. Yeah. Check all the boxes. Um, yeah. I mean, there's definitely I, there's there are loopholes. Right. So if you go to um, the currency exchanger and then you go through Europe and you have a, like, you know, 2000 euros left over when you come home and then <laughs> the euro appreciates. Right. Let's say in value against the dollar. Um, and then you go back to somehow you're able to spend your euros in some capacity or another. You don't actually pay capital gains on that, even though technically you should. But because you held it in cash the whole time, you don't. Yeah. But I mean, that's kind of like a tiny example in the large universe. Yeah. Now, hopefully they will get tax relief on, on Bitcoin so that uh, there's not that that they, so that they add a de minimis thing uh, well and- also i mean if the u.s government continues to hold bitcoin they're more likely to have their own stores of value essentially and maybe that's kind of how we get out of this trillion dollar crisis we're currently in where the debt just keeps rising yeah if, if bitcoin's value goes up more quickly than the national yeah debt, than the national then debt then somehow the math works out the math works out and we can get out of this yeah. and we don't they don't have to raise taxes to 90 percent. yeah that's optimistic is it yeah i guess so <laughs> Maybe it's too optimistic. We'll see. I mean, I think that Bitcoin changes the incentives for individuals. Um, and then recently we saw it change the incentives for a publicly traded corporation of MicroStrategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that it will change the incentives of governments, where today they're always talking about the deficit and the national debt. And if Bitcoin changes their incentives, I think it'll be to where we talk about the surplus and mm. you know the the national sovereign wealth fund yeah. that we have, and how how great everything. Now is. we're like you know competing against Norway now for best run sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, and people will be complaining about how we we don't spend enough. Oh yeah, I can see of, uh, Stephanie Kelton or whatever her name yeah. is being upset about that. Uh, she's gonna lose her mind. Oh, I know. <laughs> she probably already has lost her mind though. Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be. <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're on an hour and a half half here. Yeah, I think that maybe in order to keep an audience, we should cut it short. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, join us on the next one, or we'll talk about electricity consumption. Is there anything else that um, I mentioned that we bring up? Um, I don't know. We had a whole list. 
Yeah. I wish we wrote down that list. No, we'll, we'll come up with we'll more. We'll come up with a new list. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Morgan with an E, Rochard. And I'm at Pierre underscore Rochard. Yeah. So if you want to hear something on this pod, then definitely um, send us some notes and we will we'll take it into consideration. Yeah. <laughs> My DMs are open. So if you want to, you got topic suggestions for us to talk about, we can talk about them. And then how frequently are we planning to put these out? Let's. No promises. Yeah. We have no promises here. So we've got two kids and um, I run a business. Pierre works full time. We've got, we've got stuff happening. So um, it's already hard enough for me to get my other prod out. Yeah. But we will do our best. We'll do our best. Thanks for listening. <laughs>